Gresham College presents Debt and the Household Balance Sheet by Professor Jagjeet Chadha. Uh, we'll learn something about consumption debt and the household balance sheet in the next hour or so. Um, it's a big question to try and tackle in this period. So I'm going to start, um, as usual, with a, a little bit of theory, some facts, and then just see what we can tease out from the theory and the facts we've learnt as a guide to what's currently going on. Uh, and the big question facing people right now, I guess, in a sense, is what's going to happen to consumption, the thing that's closest to our notion of welfare uh, over the next couple of years. There's been a, a long drag on consumption measured per household since the financial crisis. We'll see a chart in a minute, and we'll see that consumption is back to the level it was nearly 10 years ago in the last year or so. That's a long period to have had stagnation or sideways movement in consumption. And if consumption is indeed the way we think about welfare, it's not surprising, as we go around the country, if that consumption hasn't risen in a 10-year period for the first time in a very long time, or certainly since we've had proper records. There's no wonder lots of people are going around complaining about the national state of affairs. Because relative to our expectations, we'll see some charts in a minute, where consumption tends to have grown at around 2% per year per person every year, if we've had 10 years without any growth at all, compared to where we expected we'd be 10 years ago, we're far below that. And no wonder, collectively, we're annoyed. What's, that? What's led us down? Well, we're not going to talk too much about the causes today. We talked about productivity in previous lectures, and we'll sum up some of these things in the final lecture uh, in this course um, in the summer. Not this course, this seminar series, I should say. Giving away some of my background when I say course. Um, and, and, and so what we want to try and understand is, can we use theory to understand what's happening to consumption? And in the middle of all of this secular stuff, this, this trends that I've been talking about, is a surprise we had in the last quarter last year where consumption looked robust relative to the doom mongers who told us that if we were to vote for a referendum, there would be an immediate recession. I should say, as the director of the National Institute, that's not something that the National Institute of Economic and Social Research ever said. Um, it had no view, um, strong view, that there'd be any great change in output in 2016. Some view that there'd be some deterioration in 2017 that we can talk about um, if we wish. Um, but for those who said that immediately consumption would fall, the resilience of consumption was something of a surprise. I want to understand whether we can use some of the theories and some of the insights that I'm going to put in front of us today to understand why. And I'll hazard a guess at the end. It'll probably be wrong, but I may as well hazard a guess, see where we get to. Now, before um, going into uh, economics and data and statistics, it's always worth having a literary angle, uh, not being classically trained myself. I'm not even going to try and uh, uh, attempt Polonius's famous speech from Hamlet, but um, I'll leave you to read it in your own good time. Many of you uh, may have even had to learn it at school. Um, but clearly, if you read it and you go through the points of it, um, the first line, costly thy habit as thy purse can buy is a budget constraint. I'm an economist, I talk about budget constraints all the time for my whole career, thinking about how much income I'm going to have over some period and how much I can therefore consume over that same period. So immediately, uh, Polonius or Shakespeare is telling us to respect um, a budget constraint. But he also knows, Shakespeare's a smart chap, he tells us that the French particularly like wearing fancy clothes. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, that's certainly what he seems to be suggesting. Uh, and we should be careful of wanting to uh, follow the tendency to spend beyond our income. Um, and he also makes the further point, which is, I think, equally interesting, that if I get into the area of loans, 
I get into the danger of default, that the loan may not be repaid, which is something we might want to be thinking about, particularly as I show you some numbers at the end about the balance sheet of households, which has grown very rapidly in the last 20 or so years in the UK. Does that lead to a problem looking forward? And also that in the act of borrowing, I may change my behaviour. I may not want to pay. I may show that I've got no money or I may stop working because somebody's already given me money, which means that I don't have to work anymore. So we come against the problem of moral hazard, whether having money up front changes behaviour in some important way. And this is kind of quite a rich set of points that we shall try to uh, uncouple during the course of today's lecture. Now, I have to be ambidextrous here and hope this works. It looks like it will. So let me start with um, some standard points that you would get from any, um, I suppose Valerie will tell me I'm not allowed to say this, but any boring economics lecturer um, but, uh, uh, about uh, the relationship between consumption and income. And whatever kind of story you've got about consumption, this is the purchase of goods and services, we'll tend to say it's some fraction of income. How are we going to define income? Income could be current income. It could be disposable income. It could be permanent income. What do I mean by permanent income? It could be your notion of what you think your income is going to be over the rest of your life appropriately discounted. So then it would be the present value of your income. Possibly quite a complex calculation. But I hazard that most of us are making these kinds of calculations, at least in some way or other. And in aggregate, it may not be a bad way of thinking about income, our permanent income, rather than our current or disposable income. But certainly we're going to be consuming some fraction of that income. The points I've just made lead to the idea of the life cycle permanent income hypothesis. I've described permanent income, so if I want to understand consumption, I don't relate it to current uh, income, I relate it to permanent income. And then I might want to add or bolt onto that some notion of the life cycle. Um, sadly, we... Well, happily we're born, but sadly we die. Um, not a lot we can do about that, but we know, therefore, we have some finite years ahead of us, some finite years in which there may be considerable variance in our earning potential. When young or when students, earning potential may be low. In, in midlife, earning potential may be high. And later on in life, it may be low again. So there's obvious forecastable changes in your income generation at different points in your lifetime. Because they're forecastable, you can take a view of your life cycle income. And what you might then want to do is say, well, well rather than just consuming very little when I'm a student and a hell of a lot when I'm earning a lot and then nothing at all when I'm retired, maybe I want to have some level of consumption that's above my income when my income is low, is below my income when my income is high and allowing me to have some savings for the end of life. And if I'm doing that properly and smartly, I might, in fact, almost be having the same level of consumption throughout my life if I was able to do that. And that's the life cycle hypothesis. We'll get, I'll go through this again graphically, and I'll show you some data as well, which at first tells you it's a load of crock, and then tells you it might just work. So I leave you to decide which one it is, crock or work. I don't know. Let's see. Now, the other aspect of this is that consumption and savings therefore go hand in hand. If I have a level of income, what I do not consume, it corresponds to my purchase of financial assets, which is my level of savings. So the very decision on consumption has at the same time a decision on savings. So they're not separate decisions. You are making the same decision simultaneously. Uh, and, and so the theory of consumption lends itself very quickly to a theory of asset pricing. 
Because it's the return on the assets that you buy that give you a return from savings. So there must be some change in asset prices that would leave you, in the end, indifferent between consuming today and consuming tomorrow. And it's those changes in asset prices that will, that will encourage you either to defer or bring forward consumption. And at those set of asset prices, you will not, when you're in equilibrium, not wish to change your consumption allocation anymore. So I'll say that all again. Simply to say I'm going to decide upon some consumption path. Having decided upon that consumption path, underpinning it are a set of assets that are giving me a return at various points in my life. And those assets giving me a return at various points in my life will ensure that my consumption path is stable across my life. <coughs> it's kind of interesting. So we have a pretty profound role in macroeconomics for consumption. Because again, if I go further, that bit of my income which I save, I'm handing over to banks, maybe dangerously, but given I'm in the city of London, I should say it's not dangerous, it's very safe, they're well capitalised, there's nothing to worry about anymore. That's not investment advice, absolutely clear. <laughs> I'm not authorised to give investment advice. I'll have a sip of water. But, so what I'm handing over to the banks... Derry, good evening. Um, so what I hand over to the banks, um, the banks can hand over to other people who want to invest today. So the pool of savings also provides the pool of investment in a closed economy. Um, so if we're going to think about aggregate fluctuations, we need a good idea of consumption if we're going to think about savings. Think about asset prices that bring consumption into line and think about the potential pool of savings available for investors. So consumption ri lies right at the heart of any macroeconomic theory. Don't think it's um, um, irrelevant in any way whatsoever. Uh, and then that throws open some other questions by people I might think of as um, um, a new breed of, of macroeconomists or people who don't think quite in the forward-looking rational expectations way that maybe I think about things, and they ask the difficult question, ah, but does consumption make you happy? Does it really reflect welfare? In the models that we work with as macroeconomists, we tend to think of, of welfare, that notion of how happy we are relative to some other state, as almost always being strictly proportional to the level of consumption and the variance that we expect in consumption. It increases in the level and reduces in the variance, because we don't like it. We would prefer stable consumption to unstable consumption. Imagine your own household, or my household, if I became um, unemployed and my wife became unemployed, our consumption would fall. But even if in the future we worked twice as hard to bring back that level of income and our consumption rose again, as a household, we'd still prefer that world in which consumption stayed the same. So we just take the view that we like consumption, we, don't, we dislike variance. But um, William Easterlin, 1974, um, use survey evidence to look at people's notions of their own happiness as a society. I noticed in the 25-year period since World War II where there had been rapid growth in advanced economies, this survey hadn't suggested any increase in measured happiness. In fact, it had fallen or gone sideways. And that led to a number of people arguing whether consumption was indeed a very good way to think about the level of welfare or happiness and whether we should be collecting other notions of well-being and asking people generally about their subjective notion of happiness. I'm going to ignore all that. 
read it somewhere else. It's in the references if you want to know about that stuff. But just to be fair, I thought I'd, I would mention it. Um, so let's look at consumption income in the UK in the 21st century. The, the red line is real post-tax income, so that's the income idea I was talking about. It, it, it's, it's current income, it's not permanent income. And the blue line is total um, consumption growth. This is growth um, in the last 15 or 16 years, and you can see reasonably steadily, steady level of growth in the first part of the noughties following the financial crisis where there's a rapid fall in real uh, post-tax income. You can see after a while, there was a bit of a gap, consumption then started to fall. So people tried to smooth for a while, but it then followed it down as people decided, hang on a minute, maybe my permanent income has fallen and consumption growth is also going to fall. And we can see quite a, a, a longer level of consumption at minus five or six in 2009 um, that um, kind of may suggest other kinds of constraints operating on consumption at that time. Because even though real post-tax income had risen, consumption stayed low, didn't follow it back up again straight away. So it could be that people felt debt constraints, understood that they had high levels of debt. It could be that, that they were unable to borrow. Could have been, okay, you can build a story there about something driving consumption down lower for longer than you might have anticipated. That's that gap, as you can see, as the line goes up from 2009 to 2010, between the change in post-tax income as it goes back to positive numbers and then what happens to consumption. And you have a mild dip again um, in 2011, um, arguably a combination of the um, chilling effects in Europe at that time and the impact of some of the fiscal consolidation that was started. And then since then, we've seen reasonably steady levels of consumption, a dip in real post-tax income towards the end of last year, but yet some what looks like robustness in consumption at the end of the sample. That's the thing I alluded to at the beginning, as to whether this uh, was a surprise to people who thought that after the referendum the economy would rapidly go in, into recession. So a number of hypotheses have been put forward as to why there was so much resilience in consumption after the referendum. And uh, I'll put a few up and you can decide what uh, you may decide. Well, what if permanent income rose after the referendum vote? Let's suppose we all believed as a country we'd be richer in the future uh, were we to leave the European Union. If that were the case, we then would expect consumption to jump up now as we're consuming from that higher level of permanent income after leaving the European Union. Um, that would be a surprise, given the overall view of the economics profession, but it's a possibility. We'll go and see later on as to whether that's true or not. We also know that consumption, when we measure it, seems to be well-tracked by sentiment or consumer sentiment. And uh, let's suppose 51 or 52% of the country voted to leave uh, the European Union. Could it be that they were made more confident by that result and they're the ones who increased their consumption? In order to get to that question, we're going to have to go to the disaggregated household level and look at what happened at a household level and for those, those types of people who voted to leave rather than remain. There's a lot of work out there now that tries to understand the nature of the vote and we have a number of identifying characteristics, age, level of recent migration, uh, income levels, competition from uh, overseas, or, uh, level of um, tertiary education as well. These factors could be taken into a model to try and understand whether the same people who voted um, leave rather than remain are also the same people who've increased their consumption levels, if that particular hypothesis were true. Um, the third possibility is that, following the, the, the jump down in the exchange rates in summer last year, that 
people were smart enough to realise that next year, i.e. this year, inflation was going to be high and goods prices were going to rise. So if they knew that, it makes a lot of sense to bring forward consumption when it's cheaper in the last quarter of last year. That would require a high degree of, of smartness, which is entirely plausible, um, and perhaps entirely implausible as well. But anyway, um, uh, but, but people would just say to themselves, look, these things are going to cost more next year, so I'm going to bring them forward. And indeed, if you look at the composition of purchases, there seems to have been a lot in what we call durable rather than non-durable consumption, so fridges and cars rather than other types of commodities. Or could it also be that the rapid response of monetary policy in August uh, last year lowered interest rates and encouraged people to bring forward expenditure, particularly if the banking sector responded by increasing the availability of loanable funds at this time? There's a number of hypotheses, and maybe at the end of the lecture I might offer my own view. Now, um, let's go back over the life cycle hypothesis. I've described it verbally, but let's see if we can understand it with a, with a chart as well. This is time. Naught is when you're born. I haven't, put a, uh, uh, I haven't put a final date for anyone there because I don't want to predict the end. It's all, you know, but we know at some point it will end. Um, and uh, let's suppose you're able to understand that your income is going to be low in the first third of life. It's going to be high in the middle of life. It's going to be low again in the uh, final part of life. I should look forward to stacking shelves in Sainsbury's uh, later on in my life when uh, the, the professorial career is over. Um, and, and then as a result of that variance in income over your life, you wouldn't, if you want a smooth consumption, allow your consumption to be constrained by your income at any point in life. You wouldn't want your consumption to be very low in the first period, very high in the next period, and very low again in the final period. So what you ideally want to do is adopt a consumption plan that would have you having a, a stable level of consumption in your whole life, so that the area under the dotted line is the same as the area under the solid line over the whole of your lifetime. That's what you'd want to adopt if you, if you possibly could. Now, that would require the ability to borrow when young and also a set of contracts into which you could buy financial assets when middle-aged that would give you the ability to pay off the debt that, you had, that you'd accrued when you were young, student debt, for example, and also give you a sufficient return so you could have um, a consumption path in your old age that was also at the same level. And that's the very simple and yet widely held and um, uh, considerably followed view of a theory of consumption, that we're going to want to smooth our consumption over our lifetime according to what we think is our uh, permanent level of income. So let's use this. When would we expect there to be debt? accruing in the economy or when we're young? When would an economy be having higher levels of debt? Well, when there are more young people, when the economy has a high birth rate, when the demographics are young, we would expect that economy to have higher levels of debt. Let's go on. How can we change that a little bit? Well, we could have interest rates out there. We could have asset prices changing or tilting consumption have a world in which that previous line that you've seen is where we've got stable consumption. But let's suppose some shock has come along and the central bank wants a bit more consumption today uh, than they would have otherwise have been. Or it's in our interest to have a little bit more consumption today um, because we have some more expenditures. I'll look at that point explicitly in a minute or two. 
But clearly, if I inc uh, lower interest rates today compared to what I expected them to be when I formulated my consumption plan, at that time, I'm going to bring forward some consumption. With interest rates low, it makes sense to bring forward consumption. Uh, and then I'm going to have a lower consumption path in the future so that I'm able to pay off the, the greater level of debt I've accrued when the level of interest rates were low. So point number two, we accrue debt not only when the economy is young and the population is growing, but when interest rates are low relative to what we'd expect them to be in the future. That's the other time we would accrue debt. Um, so let's move on. Uh, this is as complicated as it gets, so don't worry. Now, the first line is what I thought my income was going to be when I was born. I was told by my parents, this is what you're going to earn, and I adopted line one as my consumption path. Then, in the first day of my life, I discovered that, in fact, I was going to earn a lot more. I wasn't going to be an economics professor. I was, I was going to be a, a banker in the city, rather, or, or at least a banker pre-2007. Um, and um, as a result, my expected future income was higher. So clearly, at that point, I then crank up my consumption path. And I'm cranking up my consumption path today because I suddenly worked out that my permanent income is higher. So now I am accruing more debt in the first period of my life because I think I'm going to have even more income in the future. So what's another reason for accruing debt? The third reason that we have is that we think we're going to be even richer in the future than we are today, which is going to make it easier for us to pay off the level of debt that we've accrued. So that's typically understood with a productivity shock that raises income globally. So now we have three stories to help us understand debt. First is a young, growing population. Second is some tilting in interest rates, which you can also think of as an increase in the supply of loanable funds. If we're able to get more funds from other countries in the world that are savings, and those funds are shifting out the supply of loanable funds, that will reduce the interest rate and encourage us to take on debt. And the third reason we might take on debt is if we really believe we have a much richer future ahead. If we suddenly struck oil, or annexed a country that struck oil, or didn't allow a country that struck oil to leave us, whatever else it might be, we suddenly feel that we're richer as a result. So I've given you a story about um, stable consumption. What if we can't borrow? What if, as a young person, I go to the, the bank um, and I say, you know, I'm going to be a banker in the city. I'm going to be earning a lot of money in 25 years' time. Please, can you lend me so much now that I can buy a, a car and I can live a, a life with a nice suit? And the bank may say, yeah, I, I, I believe you, but I'm not going to spend other people's money on that belief. I'm going to apply a liquidity or debt constraint. I'm going to say, you can't borrow up to the present value of your income. You can only borrow up to some level of collateral or let me make a crude joke, what I think your organs are worth, whatever else it might be that you can lay on the line in terms of backing the funds that are available. And your own collateral may be somewhat less than what you may need to smooth your consumption. So in the presence of credit constraints, what you're going to find is that your income and your consumption are much more closely related. You can't accrue debt in the same way. So just as I said, if the loanable funds move out, you can accrue more debt. If they move in, if credit constraints start to bite, 
you're going to find consumption income moving much more closely together than you did. So the opposite of that is that debt is going to decumulate in a world of biting and important credit constraints, which is certainly one we think we've entered into after the crisis of 2007-8. And we'll look at the numbers a little bit later on. The two things we're going to notice, much less scope for consumption smoothing and much lower levels of debt in that world. Because now we're just following much more closely our consumption of ticket to its extreme. If there were no financial markets at all, um, some people not here would be very happy, but if there were no financial markets at all, the red line, dotted line, and the black solid line would just be the same all the way along, because you couldn't borrow or lend from anyone. So, this is, uh, these are some results from a paper by uh, uh, Arazio Atanazio, who um, works at University College London. And on the left-hand side is the USA. The top row is disposable income, and on the right-hand side is the UK. Top row is disposable income in both cases. The x-axis is age. 20 is kind of young and 60 to 70, we now know is middle age, but when he wrote this paper 20 years ago, it was old. It's, uh, it's kind of, uh, the world is changing. And uh, what you can see, uh, broadly speaking, is, is for, as far as income is concerned, I know this is continuous, but a kind of set of lines that don't look a million miles away from that, that, that humpback I showed you a minute ago. Low income, if I just go back, can we go back with this? I, I don't know if we can. can we? Oh, we can, good. So this solid line has low, high, and low again. And actually, if you look at that in, in a particular way, it does look low, high, and low again. This is the actual income that we have. The reason you've got these wavy stuff, it's done at, at groups and cohorts, so it has to be added up, so there's a sort of overlapping nature of it. But the pattern of income very much conforms to what a, a, a more complex version, but very similar graphically, to what I was suggesting we ought to find. The bottom row is total consumption. Now, I told you I believe in life cycle permanent income hypothesis, and I believe in financial markets, I tell you. So there should be a, a flat line, shouldn't there? Um, but there isn't. <laughs> I wonder if I should stop now. <laughs> Disaster. There's not a flat, it's, it's, it's very peaked, um, and actually looks, to all intents and purposes, exactly like a disposable income line. You'd imagine this was a world of severe credit constraints because we're consuming up to our income level at every cohort. Uh, uh, for the UK, um, they've been using the Family Expenditure Survey, which started in 1957. This was using uh, um, many years of that data. I can't remember, 27 or 28 years of that survey, I think. So it's pretty important stuff. One thing I would notice before we go on is that for the, U for the US, the tail-off in consumption in old age, once you get, well, not old age, but their notion of old age. We know it's middle age now. But from 50 onwards is, is, is relatively um, not, is relatively easy going. It doesn't tail off quite as quickly. But in the UK, it seems to tail off very quickly, showing a more abrupt and coordinated retirement age, which we had in the UK up to the late uh, 90s. So you're seeing a very rapid fall in consumption in that later period. But at first blush, this actually looks terribly problematic for the life cycle theory once we get down to the household level. It doesn't look like we're able to smooth our consumption over our lifetime. Now, I'll make two points. This is total consumption. It doesn't split off two elements of consumption that matter. That consumption comprises durable, consum consumption of durable goods, cars and fridges, and non-durable goods. 
When we talk about consumption and utility, we tend to think of it in terms of non-durable goods. So what we have to look at is consumption of durables, and we have to adjust the households for the number of adults in them. So they have to, we have to look at adult-equivalent households. Now, if when we're 40, that's the time we have four people in the household, we have a partner plus two children, that's naturally going to be the time that we have high levels of household consumption. So we need to deflate the amount of consumption by the number of people in the household. It has to be adult equivalent, not just total consumption. And clearly later on in life, when hopefully one day the children leave home, um, the consumption level looks like it's fallen, but in adult equivalent terms it may not have fallen because two uh, ready-made adults have left the household. So this has to be adjusted for both of those effects of non-durable uh, and household equivalent. So let's see what happens when we do that. Um, and indeed, um, it, it's, cons it's considerably flatter. Once we go to non-durable consumption, um, the bottom line is the one to look at rather than the previous line which we put over the top. When I say line, I mean lines. The bottom, in both cases, corresponds to the household non-durable consumption per adult equivalent. So this top line is divided through by the number of adults. Then we get something that looks much more appealing if you're a life cycle, permanent income kind of person. It looks much flatter uh, and almost conforming with the theory. Oh, that doesn't work, I've reversed. So let me summarise um, this part of the lecture, and then we'll go on to look at some pretty pictures. Well, I think they're pretty. Um, so what are we doing? We're going to have a budget constraint, which has consumption equals income um, over the lifetime. Um, we'll expect consumption to be smooth over the lifetime. Saving is mostly going to occur in midlife. So if we're going to have economies that are saving economies, they're going to be ones in which there's, in principle, a large number of people in middle age. They're the ones saving. And if we're going to have economies that are accruing debt, they're going to be economies in which there are large numbers of young people. That's what we'd expect to find. Whether that's true in reality, we can talk about in questions. Um, increases in future income, as I've suggested, will tend to increase indebtedness. Reductions in interest rates will tend to bring forward tilt um, or bring forward consumption. So that's what we should have in our mind when we think about the decision to consume. Remembering the decision to consume is the opposite of the decision to save. And the decision to save gives us a view as to the level of debt we accumulate as an economy at the household level. No, this one. So now let's look at um, real consumption per head in the UK since uh, 1950. Uh, 1955, in this case. This is in real terms, so this is, and it's in pounds per quarter or widgets per quarter. So in 1955, um, every person was uh, consuming around 1,300 widgets per quarter, and that by the, the um, time of the financial crisis in 2007-2008, they were consuming a fraction over 4,500 widgets. A quarter. Um, so 
This is the point about economic progress that I was talking about at the beginning of the lecture. Firstly, there has been economic progress. Don't let, don't let anyone tell you things were better in the past, certainly not in consumption or welfare terms. That's a load of crop. But secondly, because of that long period of growth, we had grown to expect that period of growth. Certainly, 2005, 2006, if we'd cranked forward that progress of growth and we, we would begin to understand why we're so disappointed. I'm going to try this again to see if it works. Um, there we go. So if you were kind of believing of this trend, about here you would have been expecting to be somewhere around here. We've got about seven or 8,000 widgets per quarter. And where we are, thankfully, we're back to where we were 10 years ago. So at least we've moved sideways over that period. But compared to expectations, it's a very disappointing performance. And I think that's the main reason for that sense of disappointment, I think, as people wander around and say to themselves, we're not back to where we were. We're not feeling as though we're an economy in recovery. We're an economy going through a long period of rehabilitation. I think it's as much that stylized fact as any other when we think about that. Um, just to follow up with the point that I made um, a moment ago, is this is the, again, in real terms, a household um, disposable income, the top line. And what we have below that is total consumption. And this is to show you uh, the split between non-durable and durable consumption. Durable consumption in the UK is around 10% of uh, total consumption. Uh, and you can't see it from here, but you'll see it later on. It's more volatile, and I'll show you that in a second. But I'll show you that if you think about consumption, you need to think about both, not just one or the other, because they've got quite different properties. Um, and we'll see that now, hopefully. Um, and so here we can look at household consumption relative to disposable income. And you see that people seem to be consuming about 90% of their disposable income. And we can see a, a, a rapid increase in the noughties, and, uh, leading to this large adjustment as people realise maybe we've been spending a bit too much and we have to save more. So this, is, this fall in the ratio of consumption and disposable income is an increase in the savings rate. What's going to cause this increase in consumption relative to income? Well, we've already talked about those factors. A reduction in interest rates may cause people to bring forward consumption. An increase in their notion of wealth will tend to bring forward consumption. And certainly if there are more young people being born. So we have to think about those factors as structural reasons before we start to say it's problematic or not. But what we will tend to see is that when there are peaks in consumption to disposable income or rapid falls in savings, which is the opposite of this, or the dual of this, it seems to be problematic. There seem to be rapid adjustments. We saw this very rapid adjustment here associated with the recession of 10 years ago. Um, just, just to drive home the point that, um, that non-durable consumption is now around 10%. This is the fraction of consumption that's uh, non-durable. So durable consumption is around 10% of total consumption. Um, why, do we, why do I keep stressing the point about durable versus non-durable? We know that durable, because it's the purchase of a good that lasts for many years and often of high value, such as a car or a fridge, um, is more sensitive to changes in interest rates than durable consumption. When we're trying to understand the impact of changes in interest rates, we want to split the two off. Think about durable and non-durable separately. 
Uh, it's interesting that the fraction of income that we're allocating um, to durable goods is increasing. I can also look at the ratio of uh, household national consumption. Now, interestingly, national consumption, household consumption, is that when we look at national consumption, we're throwing in the non-profit sector, the charity sector as well. So the numbers are slightly different here. But the national consumption includes households and the charity sector. And you can see these large falls in wartime. And you can see uh, an, uh, where this crosses one in the late 1980s and in 2007 was quickly triggering large adjustments again. So as consumption rose relative to disposable income to some peaks over its long run level, what you're seeing in every case is rapid adjustment afterwards. It's something to worry about. People, households suddenly realise we've got too much borrowing here, we're not saving enough, and then there's a rapid adjustment. It's a kind of something to be wary of when you think about an economy. So the other side of that is to look at the savings rate. And you see that the savings rate in the pre-20th century period was very volatile, probably measured with a great deal of error, seeing a lot of movement there. Uh, see in the um, immediate post-war period, period of financial repression, relatively high savings ratios that fell in uh, the 1980s and the noughties to something around, around about 6%. It's difficult to see a sense of any stability in that number. It seems to be extremely volatile in the UK. So we're not seeing a stable level of savings. And that's difficult to understand um, within the context of the life cycle permanent income hypothesis I've put forward. So I think it is a concern. Um, one possibility is that because we have non-profit institutions in there, we may not be measuring this perfectly accurately as opposed to households alone. So some of the volatility here could be in introduced, being introduced by the non-profit institutions. So it's a little bit like a chart we saw earlier. This is, the purple line is um, real disposable income. And then we, what, we can, what I'm showing here is how volatile durable consumption is relative to non-durable consumption. You can see that it's more volatile than income itself. It's responsive to interest rates and particularly responsive to the availability of loanable funds. And if we have a recent overshoot in consumption, it might be as much to do with durable expenditures which will then be more likely to reverse themselves. So what are the stylized facts about consumption? Durable consumption is less volatile, but if it gets shocked to another level, it stays there for a while, reflecting views on permanent income. Non-durable consumption is more volatile, it jumps up and it jumps back down again. So if some of the overshooting consumption last year was to do with uh, durable consumption rather than non-durable consumption, you can expect it to reverse itself in a way that if it was durable consumption, it wouldn't. And that's an important separating principle. With durable con uh, the consumption on durables may have been closely related to changes in interest rates and lending conditions. Okay, so um, that's just a statement of overall household consumption. Um, and if I go back here, looking at the time series yourselves, you'll understand why it's important to decouple the two. If you don't, you're not going to get a good picture of what's going on in consumption. Finally, with these relations, you can 
you can uh, regress one on the other. I wouldn't say this is a serious attempt to regress, but I just wanted to understand in the noughties, if you try to understand the relationship between consumption in aggregate, not durable, non-durable, but the whole thing, relative to income, you're, you're kind of getting a result that consumption changes about half a percent for every one percent is changing income. And that also, if there's no change in income, consumption still grows at one percent. That's what that progression is, is telling you. So consumption overall is smoother. It doesn't move one for one with income, um, but it does move with income. There is a relationship there. So that's um, a simple takeaway point. You might expect consumption to move about 50% of any move in disposable income. Now, let's get to the punchline in the sense of today's lecture. The balance sheet of the household sector. We want to think about assets and liabilities. The assets of the household sector, tangible assets, real estates, these durable goods I've been talking about, uh, probably ad nauseum, but these, these are assets that we, we hold. Um, financial assets, insurance, pensions, equities, cash deposits, debt securities, and other, and they're going to be equal to our liabilities, our financial liabilities, our loans, insurance and pensions, debt securities, and other, and our net worth or net wealth are the assets minus the liabilities. I talk to most people in the street. I wouldn't advise it, but if you did, um, uh, <laughs> they will tell you the household sector in the UK is, is loaded with debt and we're all being weighed down and we're all not worth anything, I think, is the view. So let's put some numbers there from 1995. And what you can see is that um, we're uh, looking at... Um, stock uh, of, of debt at 3 uh, trillion, 3.4 trillion, 37% of which is tangible assets. Um, of that 30%, nearly all of it is real estate, only a small amount of it is durable goods. And the rest of it is financial assets that we hold, our insurance and pensions. Note that the value of our insurance and pensions some 20 years ago was about the size of our real estate. Our equity holdings were much smaller than our holdings of real estate. So we're a country that tends to want to hold housing as our main asset rather than equities. certain amount of cash deposits, the same as equities, which is interesting in itself, that we hold as much in cash as we do in equities, and the rest of it is relatively small debt securities and others. Financial uh, liabilities um, were some 16% of our, of our overall uh, liabilities, and most of that was loans. And... Um, I think you can imagine that most of that would be loans on real estate, some of it on durable goods. And we've got some idea of the loans that we've taken out against real estate from that balance sheet some 20 years ago. Net worth, just under three trillion. So certainly there's more worth, more positive wealth in the household sector than there is debt some 20 years ago. Is that still the case today or recently? Any guesses? Disastrous, isn't it? Now, I don't know about you. I don't feel this, this well off. <laughs> so, <laughs> so someone's got it. Chancellor. Maybe it's all those self-employed people who don't want to pay national insurance contributions. 
I don't know. But this, this itself is fascinating, isn't it? Um, our real estate assets have um, increased several fold um, in, 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 in that period, um, nearly five times, in fact, over a 20 year period, which is a remarkable increase. Um, durable goods um, have uh, tripled in that period. Our financial assets um, have also tripled. Um, we're still, I mean, the ratio of real estate to equity holdings is remarkable. Uh, six times or seven times uh, our wealth in real estate as opposed to equities. Um, as a country, it's an interesting set of choices. Considerably more in cash than we have in equities. Um, I don't know what people get in their bank <laughs> at the moment <laughs> on cash. But it does seem an odd choice, I've got to say. Um, but again, I'm not giving investment advice. To be absolutely clear. You'll be careful about that. I might get sued. Um, and, and there we are. So uh, it, it's, it's an interesting financial position, not as unhealthy as people would let you think. Clearly, most of the loans, um, well, the financial liabilities are mostly loans, 1.6 trillion, but it's more than covered by the value of the real estate that the household sector owns. So it looks like those loans, if they are claims on the real estate sector, are not um, too problematic. But of course the loans are high. Um, we might want to think about this relative to income. But net worth is at 10 trillion. So that's um, gone up, tripled in 20 years. It's quite a remarkable increase in the wealth, the net worth of our of our housing sector, the supply, which provides the savings, pool of savings for the rest of the economy. It's not quite as unhealthy as everyone would let you believe, it seems to me. Um, and so you can look at the ratio of, of net wealth to consumption. You can see that to total consumption, we're covering um, that by a factor of eight or nine. The wealth that we own is eight or nine times the level of consumption. So that also means that if we have income shocks, we have got some net worth, we can place as collateral against that to further, uh, to further smooth our consumption. I'm going to present a, a story that may surprise you as we go on here. This is just plotting in time series household sector net wealth, and we get an average growth of over 7% over this 20-year period. So you may not feel it, but the representative person amongst you has had their net worth grow at 7% a year over the last 20 years. So someone in this room is very, very rich. If we can find them, don't let them leave. That's what I say. And that, of course, gives a diff completely different perspective on the level of debt to GDP. Household debt to GDP in the 1960s was around 30%. It, you can see this cranking up in the 70s, the adoption of credit, um, competition and credit control, and further financial liberalisation throughout the 80s, and again in the 90s, we're seeing an increase to some 100%. After the start of the financial crisis, this fell rapidly, but is still somewhere over 80%. Now, to look at that chart, and by listening to some commentators, you may say this is a complete disaster. Now, it may still be a complete disaster, but it's not a level of debt that's unbacked by the level of wealth. It's covered it's not unsecured in that sense. And it might very well be that the levels of debt we had in the 60s and 70s were suboptimally low. 
maybe it was hard for people to get a mortgage. I, I wasn't around, um, actually, but um, I I, one's got to regret the times that you had to become a member of the golf club or join the Rotary Club or, join, or have to sit down with a bank manager to get a, get a loan. The fact that it's easier may well be welfare-enhancing, allowing people to get on with their lives and also have some liquid, liquid wealth from which they can borrow later on in their lives. It may not be, have been a bad thing. Now, it could very well be that the process of going from 30 to 100, at some point we went through the optimal. And maybe that's what the financial crisis were telling us, uh, that we went above what we should have got to. But I, I would submit that getting back to 30% may be below what is optimal for a, a, a growing economy to have, uh, perhaps a young economy and all the things we've talked about before, an economy in which we expect there to be productivity. And it might be that the fall in debt to income since is more to do with the fact where we've become to realise that we're ageing, so we can't save as much, and that maybe the productivity levels that drove the level of consumption for in the past are not going to be in the future what they were. And in that world, we're rational to reduce the levels of debt that we see. It may not be by itself anything other than an equilibrium adjustment we're seeing. That's a maybe not radical, but perhaps a new thought compared to this idea that there's been a massive debt overhang. I'm not clear that there has been. And of course the UK um, has a pattern that's been followed by other advanced economies. 99, this is the, these are the numbers of the UK from 99. You can see debt going up, um, again, to the numbers that I said some moments ago. But if we average cost advanced economies, we see very much the same pattern. So other advanced economies also saw their household balance sheets expand at a similar rate, which is valuable because it gives a cushion against income shocks. And those income shocks can be within a, a period or they can be over time into the future. If I have that level of net worth, I've got some pensions, assets that I can use later on in my life or I can hand over to my children. That's what I mean by a cushion. That is available. Um, but also, these economies have also started to adjust downwards. Um, now, because we don't know what the appropriate optimal level of debt is, what we didn't want to happen in 2009 and 10 was too rapid adjustment of the levels of debt. Now, how, if I have a level of debt that's 100% of, of uh, income and I want to reduce it too quickly... I reduce consumption very quickly, increase my savings ratio, and that may have multiplier effects in the economy by affecting confidence, by affecting business investment, that may lead to a more prolonged and deeper downturn. You may get a more rapid adjustment in debt as people save more, but you may get a deeper and longer recession as a result. So what was the central bank response? Central bank response was to lower interest rates for longer so that the adjustment was not as abrupt as it would otherwise have been. So let's suppose you woke up one day in August 2007 and you said, you know what, I've got a bit too much debt. It's 100% of my income. What I need to do now is to get it down to 70%. If I try and do it all in one year, that's a massive reduction in my consumption and a massive increase in savings that might generate very high levels of unemployment if everyone else did the same thing and it affected confidence and it led to a reduction in investment. So you don't want to, so in order for it not to happen too quickly, the central bank cutting interest rates encourages that to happen more slowly rather than reducing my consumption completely because interest rates are now low, I do it a little bit less. Because I do a little bit less, 
the process prolongs over a number of years rather than one year. That may be why we're sort of feeling this sense of it's just going on and on and on as we're slowly adjusting to some appropriate level of debt. Um, I can't tell you what the appropriate level is. I'd have to think about the demographics, the long-term interest rate, the, uh, uh, the likely accrual of productivity. All these factors could pin down a particular optimal level. But we need a structural story and we could arrive there. But it would seem to me that it's not back to 30, not back to 50. It could very well be in the 70, 75 range. But I'd have to work a little bit more to come up with a number for you. In conclusion, economists, as economists, we think consumption is closely related to welfare. It's the thing we want to understand most because it picks into so many other parts of the economy. Aggregate consumption does those tend to follow current income more than we might expect, and it's therefore may not be fully rational. There may be all kinds of people out there who are hand-to-mouth, affected by credit constraints or affected by consumer confidence, um, so that the life cycle story, although it's an approximation, isn't a perfect reflection of what goes on. But in that, we have to unpick the durable and non-durable consumption story. If we're going to understand booms in consumption or surprises in consumption, we have to move away from the aggregate and look at the cohorts. It could be that uh, when we look at the boom in the late 1980s, it was exactly to do with a population boom of young people at that time. If we want to understand what happened last year, it might be something to do with regional effects from particular areas that voted in a particular way. So the aggregate level can only give us a certain insight into the economy. We have to go down to the household level. The good news is, though, Debt accumulation is more than matched by net wealth. The thing that worries me a bit is the concentration of wealth in housing. We'd want it to be more uh, diversified, but again, that's not investment advice. We're going through um, a period of adjustment in household debt. It may be far from complete, but we have gone through an important period of adjustment. And central bank policy, it seems to me, has been about smoothing that adjustment, and I may say appropriately. Thank you for coming along. I'll see you next time. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.